Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a panel discussion from the IO360 2020 Summit, led by Dr. Jeff Bachman of Cello Health Bioconsulting, on the topic of what do next-generation immunotherapies need to look like to move the needle. The panel tied together discussion on scientific, translational, and business development considerations into the latest thinking on strategizing development in I.O. that will impact collaborations and investment decision-making. Dr. Bachman was joined by Dr. Jennifer Buell of Agenis Bio, Dr. Charles Drake of Columbia University Medical Center, Ashtika Gunwardine of SunTrust Robinson Humphrey, Michael King Jr. of Fortress Biotech, and Dr. Emmett Schmidt of Merck. Anyway, thank you so much. I'm delighted to introduce Jeff Bachman, who's Head of Oncology at Cello Bioconsulting. Jeff is going to host an August panel, and I look forward to watching with interest. Many thanks for your attention. Thank, thank you. you so much. Uh, no slides. All right. Um, perfect pairing, then, because Andrew Empeha's uh, discussion around mostly later-stage assets, I think um, certainly a, a great focus of what we'll be talking about will be um, relevant to those biotechs in the audience and others with earlier stage assets. So let's give a chance for everyone to come up, our very esteemed panel. Including me or comments uh, relative to uh, Andrew's introduction of Crystal this morning where he talked about adolescence, though he was specifically referring to um, just a cell therapy. I think one could argue that, I thought I had a big enough booming voice to not need this, but all right, um, that, um, that that adolescence comment could also apply broadly to, to IO. And what I want to make sure is that to extend that analogy of kind of um, IO and not just cell therapy as being the use the case the adolescent girl um, but I think the what we don't want to have is a situation uh, that is like a village of the damned if any of you know that black and white 1960s movie right that's where the children take over the adults so I think the analogy there is that we have been in a situation where there was such a rush into IO one might have thought IO would solve every problem and now in part, as Andrew showed in some of the slides, there is kind of a retrenchment and a realization that you need multiple types of approaches, orthogonal approaches, et cetera, IO and quote, unquote, non-IO, artificial dichotomy, in order to address things. Um, I think the other, to extend that metaphor even further, is the other thing we don't want to become is like Lord of the Flies uh, or like Survivor, uh, where we see one and one only approach being the be and end all. So whether that's reflected in the mock debate uh, between Dan and Carl uh, or otherwise, we know that even in the I.O. world, we're going to need multiple types of approaches. So. Um, so what we'll be talking here is, is hopefully to uh, address some of these interesting things, both scientific, clinical, and commercial. And now I'm going to let the esteemed panelists self-introduce, and we'll get going, because we have a lot to talk about and not much time. 
Uh, my name is Chuck Drake. I lead GU Medical Oncology at uh, Columbia, and I also have a basic science lab that studies multiple different um, mechanisms of IO and uh, agents. Thanks, Chuck. Hi, Jennifer Buell. I'm the President and Chief Operating Officer of Agenis. Agenis is a small biotech company, about 300 employees in Lexington, Massachusetts, focusing on advancing novel immune therapies for patients with cancer. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, good morning, everyone. Astika Gunwardin. I'm a Senior Biotech Analyst at SunTrust. Um, I, uh, in particular, I cover the in immuno-oncology and uh, the antibody tech space in my coverage. Thank you. Hi, I'm uh, Mike King. I'm an entrepreneur in residence at Fortress Biotech. I've been uh, doing the uh, company creation thing for about two years at Fortress Biotech, and I'm a reformed uh, Wall Street analyst where I spent about 25 years. So to stay with the analogies here, I'd say I'm probably a senior citizen as far as Wall Street <laughs> analysts are concerned. As long as you're not Detroit. Emmett <laughs> <clears throat> Schmidt, apologize for a little bit of laryngitis. Um, grat gratitude to my two grandchildren who have given this to me over the last two months. Um, I lead something called external collaborations at Merck. Uh, needless to say, it was probably invented in response to the PD-1 revolution. So before PD-1, I don't think something called external collaborations would exist. All right, great. So um, let's start with, actually, Andrew also queued us up a bit for this. So clearly there have been a number of, sorry, all right, there have been a number of uh, stumbles. That's my very tactful diplomatic uh, statement uh, that I've opened up a number of these panels with uh, in terms of uh, I.O. and some of these may be resurrected. Uh, so I was interested to see um, Andrew putting up IDO there because although the small molecule agents uh, have had a stumble, there was an interesting press release recently from uh, one of our clients about an interesting biotech in Copenhagen called IO Biotech that has a little bit of a uh, unicorn idea of making vaccines against immune targets like checkpoints and IDO, et cetera. And they had some interesting signals coming out of their lung study. So, so some of these targets, as Monty Python would say, are not dead yet. Um, they probably didn't fail because they're interesting. They failed for a variety of other reasons, including trial design, et cetera. And maybe we'll talk about a bit of that. So I'm going to start with you, Jennifer. Um, in our prep call, we talked about, you know, how we are trying to go beyond kind of the targets that we're at now. And that beyond doesn't solely mean brand new targets. It also means how we can improve the targets that we have. And whether that is ultimately incremental or potentially even more than that, uh, maybe you can open that discussion and we can talk a little about that. That'll transition us from things that are more um, near term, as Andrew was talking about, and then we'll move into the earlier stage ideas. Sure. Very happy to, Jeff. Thank you. So I, I was uh, not entirely surprised that CTLA-4 did not show up <laughs> in Andrew's uh, predictions. However, um, it's somewhat disappointing given what we have known from this molecule, first-generation CTLA-4s, um, and how essentially that was one of the first molecules to allow us to put the word cure in connection with cancer, which previously had, had just was impossible. Um, but what we have learned, of course, was that first-generation CTLA-4s may have been overdosed or dosed too frequently and were somewhat toxic despite some of the benefits. Um, but we've also learned quite a bit more now. And, um, and we've learned that there are patients, a, a good majority of patients, who have a genetic polymorphism that render them a less responsive or somewhat unresponsive to, um, to a first-generation CTLA-4. And these are polymorph a genetic mutation in CD16 allele. So we have, at Agenis, we have, I mentioned 300 employees. We're small, but we're mighty. Uh, we delivered 13 INDs in uh, three and a half years. 
and we have some major partnerships. And one of the components that we've delivered on is we've delivered a first generation CTLA-4 and PD-1 into the clinic, and we're filing BLAs for those this year. We had identified that um, we had a way, a discovery that we made to engineer and enhance on a first-generation CTLA-4 that would address some of the limitations um, that we were seeing in the clinic previously. We have done so. We published these data in Cancer Cell in 2018, and essentially we have an FC-enhanced next-generation CTLA-4, Agen-1181. It's in the clinic. It's advancing. With this molecule, we believe, will build on what we see. So it's not just T-cell activation, which benefits patients from post-CTLA-4 treatment, but also um, our molecule is designed to increase priming, um, also to broaden the population of responders to include patients who also have this polymorphism that, that um, renders them less responsive to a first generation. I had the pleasure uh, of hosting Chuck Drake recently at an investor day that we held last week, and we presented some, some data from our phase one study. The phase one study is, is advancing in the clinic, um, both as a monotherapy as well as in combination with our PD-1. And what we presented on, we haven't disclosed the full data set yet, but the majority of patients who are response-valuable have had disease stabilization. And most importantly, we announced that a patient with metastatic endometrial cancer with very poor prognosis, the patient was BRCA negative, pdl one negative, MSI or MSS, MSI stable, MSS patient, um, unlikely to respond to, um, to CTLA-4 immune therapy in general. The patient had disease that metastasized to her colon as well as her inguinal lymph. She was heavily symptomatic after two doses. She was asymptomatic, and after four, she is a complete responder. So we're very thrilled. This was the first patient, um, one out of three patients dosed at our target dose of one mg per kg. So additional data will be forthcoming, but what we've been looking to do, um, and we reported this as well, uh, Dr. Drake presented it, uh, this patient had the genetic polymorphism, so that patient would have been even less likely to respond to a first-generation CTLA-4, and they responded to 1181. So I do believe there's a way that we can take our learnings from what we're seeing and really enhance on, um, on these learnings, and, and the case is exemplified by our Agenis, uh, Agen 1181. Thanks, Jennifer. Maybe we'll go to you, um, Chuck, and you can kind of expound on that, not just the idea of CTLA-4 specifically, but how in what we've seen in some of the stumbles in the past or some of the things that are not on the list that Andrew put on or even on the list, how these may be resurrected or reinterrogated, whether that's through appropriate stratification, whether that's through engineering the molecules in some way. Um, and then eventually we'll, we'll get to the more novel, novel stuff. But it, it, I was a little bit um, disappointed to see it written as stumbles. I think that the vast majority of PD-1 combination trials use a fairly similar design. They take patients who progressed on prior anti-PD-1 and then try to add a novel agent. And, and that's not how it works, actually. I mean, Alan Corman published a paper, um, a very nice paper, when you take PD-1 progressing mice and you add CTLA-4, it, it actually doesn't work. You have to give them up front, actually. And so I think one simple mechanism to try to make these quote-unquote failed drugs work is just to try to give them a little bit earlier in the disease course. And the second one is one that we all talk about and we all dream about and hopefully it'll work, and that is the idea is to use biomarker selection. So, for example, patients whose tumors express LAG3 after they progress on PD-1, maybe anti-PD-1 plus anti-LAG3 can have some activity. And, and it's interesting enough, actually, 
PDL1 itself seems to be a pretty good biomarker, right? So patients who progress on PD1 who still express PDL1 seem to, so, to um, uh, respond to other things like TIN3 and things like that. So I think in the second line after P1, PD1 progression, the, the, the game is really going to be if you want to go there, it's always going to be harder. Progression is heterogeneous. So if you go there, you have to think about biomarker selection. But the other simple way is to simply think about going up front. Thank you. So I, I think that underscores this idea that, you know, drugs that currently may not be seen as having succeeded, let's phrase it that way, um, are probably still have viability and it's trial design or other aspects. And, you know, I go back to something that uh, Dimitri Zamrin phrased on a, on a panel where he said, you know, and this also goes to Andrew's slides, that BD outpaced, he said outpaced, um, outpaced science. Um, I would just refine that and say I think BD outpaced um, exploration of biology and certainly outpaced translational science. So given your comments about um, you know, the successes of agents and trial design, maybe that's a perfect segue to, to you, Emmett, um, and, and maybe you can talk about, because this all pertains ultimately to the idea of combinations of some sort, and there's very interesting publication, which you haven't seen, and hopefully you'll, you'll check it out, that, that Emmett put out there about kind of combinations in this immunotherapy world that we're in. <laughs> so <clears throat> hopefully this will work better. Um, I also would agree that stumbles is a bad word. Um, I wear at least three hats on this panel. One of my hats is sitting in the audience. I lead something called external collaborations. My collaborators are all here. So in many ways, I, I represent them as much as I represent Merck. But you know, let me get to the paper and, and think out loud about what I was trying to do. Um, you know, in 2013, when the cancer immunity cycle was first published, um, you know, what did we know? We knew IP worked, we knew a PD-1 worked, and we knew that if you put the two together, huh, somehow it was maybe a little more interesting. Now, what I saw ensued from there was gross overinterpretation of data. I don't think immunologists are particularly good mathematicians. <laughs> what they did was to look at two curves that very clearly, if you added one to the other, was, you know, the second curve was no more than the first two added together, and started using the word synergy. I was fascinated that Andrew actually went through an entire presentation using the word synergy once. But he did use the word synergy once, and he did not define it. So let's think about synergy. Immune synergy has been bandied about all over the place. You can find 700 references of it in the immune literature, and nobody ever really quite says what it is. I think it's sort of in their minds what you do when you do genetics, and that's epistasis. Um, and it's been translated over into mouse experiments where I've seen 500 mouse experiments with MT38s or CT26 where you see these two curves, you see another curve, and by the way, they are not synergistic. Please stop saying that. <laughs> um, so I just said, okay, is there some way to look at everything that was done up until you know, a, a little bit over a year ago to say, what's the mathematics? The mathematics is really very simple. This was a paper published in 1938 called On the Toxicity of Poisons Applied Together, which I find an ironic, delightful title um, by a, a gentleman named Bliss that just says, you know, one plus one is only going to add up to one plus one minus one times one. It, trust the math. Um, because that's independent action. So I just said, okay, let's look at every single trial that's out there um, that was available to me to look and see, is there any evidence, is there any evidence that there is mathematical synergy in all of these claims? And like the Adam Palmer and Peter Sorger paper, there actually isn't. 
if you look across the 316 trials that were out there and you do the Bliss equation, the average clinical, the average clinical synergy math is zero. If you look at a linear regression for this, the linear regression for it is one. That is, with all of this work to try and extrapolate from immune synergy over to a drug model, it's not predictive. So what is predictive is a very age-old, again, there's nothing new about this, monotherapy efficacy. So at least at this point in time, pending TIGIT, pending TGF-beta, pending a lot of other things, honest to God, the best predictor you can have is monotherapy response. So just as Chuck said, you know, going into these combinations in refractory is a challenging idea, I would agree. I do worry about, and I want to circle back to your comments, I do worry about the idea of going further forward in lines. Um, because many of these combinations are actually antagonistic. Um, many things that you would, and when I start naming them, I get myself in trouble because some of the people are in this room. Um, but, you know, honest to God, please let's look and make sure we have clinical equipoise on these things. Let's begin to think again that we need to have interim futility analyses in these combinations that you can't just assume because it's on the Melman diagram, it's going to work. Because so far, nothing on the Melman diagram has worked to get to phase three. And let's just be more cautious with our patients. We're going to get, I'm going to expand on that point, but I'll give Chuck a chance. Do you want to respond to? So I totally agree. I would argue one tiny argument. So in mice, actually, the the first, we, we published this paper with Dario Vignali, Drew Pardol, LAG3 and PD-1 in mice are synergistic. We did the, the math, actually. Um, that is, PD-1 knockout mice live normal life. LAG3 mice live a normal, and when you breed them together, the mice die, actually. And so you don't really have to do all that math, but we did the math, actually. But I totally agree with you. In the clinic, it's not the okay. <laughs> so, so Well, and again, that's why I just distinguished <laughs> genetics is genetics. Right. I think we call that epistasis the last time I checked. But uh, So I, I, you know, I, I think we're, we're over-interpreting those genetic experiments, Absolutely. is my view. Absolutely. So let's get a little theoretical, and then we can get practical. So Emmett just raised this point, and... Um, was also raised by you, Chuck, is by and large, we have been operating under a variety of paradigms. Some of those are defined by, you know, early science and kind of conceptual frameworks, like the cancer immunity cycle. Some are defined by um, regulatory stance and kind of standard clinical development pathways, like go into non-responders. Um, have we been misled by some of these concepts? Uh, are some of the, and I, again, I think the word stumble is designed to say those drugs have not failed. Uh, they have hit a road bump or something um, and, you know, it remains to be determined. So they're not dead yet. But um, have we somehow failed in prosecuting the drugs we are because we've been operating under the wrong paradigms? Uh, or are we just not doing the appropriate kind of studies of biology and translational science to move them along? Or is it somewhere in between? Anyone want to pick up that gauntlet? Uh, Mike, you're a, for, you're a former banker. You sure. should be. Well, yeah, <laughs> or, uh, not that I know anything. But um, no, I would say that um, the translational, you know, the quote about the BD exceeding the science, the translational is certainly true. You know, there's been, there were just a massive amount of papers published on um, sequencing of a variety of tumors. I think Wellcome Trust took the lead, <clears throat> but there were, I don't know, 35 or 40 simultaneous papers that, that genetically dissected uh, 
about the same number of, of different tumor types, and we don't we have not done the same kind of, we have not done the undertaken the same kind of exercise in the I/O world as we've seen with sort of cancer genetics. Um, second, just as far as I've found is the animal models have not been reliable. Um, I think Ido is a, is a, is a case in point. Um, I think uh, uh, A2A, uh, you know, the whole a- A2A, which, which has incredible uh, preclinical uh, evidence of, uh, of synergy um, with PD-1, uh, d- does not pan out in, in the clinic. So, you know, I, I, and I think we're going to need to bridge that gap because, you know, if you want to uh, refer back to Andrew's chart about the, uh, you know, about the getting to equipoise. I think investors are going to demand that. You know, there's only so many trials that we can put together empirically and have them fail. Um, you know, with absolutely no evidence of additivity. That um, you know, the the efficiency of capital will demand that more translational work be done, more reliable translational work be done. I don't know if yeah, I do share that. Well, I'll, I'll add something to that. Um, when, when I guess you're uh, a, a small biotech company and you know, unfortunately something fails, I don't think the investors want to sit there and hear, oh, here's exactly why it failed. Um, a lot of times the street is asking for, well, what are you coming up with next to plug this now gap that you've uh, uh, that you created? So it's almost like you don't get rewarded for, for, for doing some of the extra work. Nor do you get a chance usually to explore why it failed to see whether you can correct that because the pressure is on time and money. So Jeffrey typically invites me so that I can argue with him. <laughs> so, what is life without that? <laughs> so let me, let me pose an opposite hypothesis. Um, I'm going to quote somebody that half the room will, will groan about. Um, I, I was a Duke medical student, so I'll quote the inimitable Mike Krzyzewski. And Mike's philosophy about how you win games is next play. You don't go back and reanalyze the old play. You move on. So I think one of the things that we're a little bit missing in the I.O. world is, is stopping. Um, you know, we aren't really saying that was negative, move on. It wasn't a stumble. It was very useful data. It was exquisitely useful data. You know, I mean, it used to be in big pharma, you know, if you killed a project, they gave you laurels and you know, scattered the, the field with lilies in, in your honor. Um, but we got you know, so spoiled by PD-1 and IPI that somehow we thought there was an inevitability to this. Well, gosh, guys, there isn't. There's no inevitability to this. Almost everything we do is going to be wrong. So let's celebrate it for being wrong and next play. I'm not so sure translational medicine is as important as you're talking Fair enough, fair enough. Um, anyone want to go ahead, Mike? I mean, how else would you propose to do it? I mean, the, the you know, I mean, we've seen the same kind of uh, evolution, I think, in I.O. as we saw with targeted therapy. And eventually the, you know, the translational methodologies uh, work themselves out. Why, why do you think that's not uh, appropriate in the world we're in in I.O.? Um, if these were pre-specified hypotheses, I'm with you all the way. Our, our problem is uniform across the field. I was a victim of it as my first project at Merck, honest to goodness. You know, it's not, it's not that I know anything. Merck knows anything. It's just psychologically this is what human beings do. They want to explain failure. Um, you know, Kahneman and Tversky have taught us this, and they've also taught us that it's not necessarily the right reasoning. If you do a 1,000 post-hoc analyses on why any of these drugs failed, you'll find five things that have p-values. You'll now go wandering off after them. If you did not pre-specify it, you're wasting your time. That's strong. Sometimes you're not. 
but you know the likelihood is you're wasting your time. So again, you know, fast fail, move on. And I, I know a speaker wants to make a comment, but I'm just going to make one okay. comment to counter this statement I made about translational, and I can, you know, use it to actually confirm. So I'm playing like the Dan Chen Carl do myself. So, um, and that is so. Yeah. So well, well. So we may have stumbled upon perhaps. So we may have stumbled upon the best signal through serendipity with you know PD1, PDL1, um, and it may be analogous to what we saw with all the huge. Exactly. That's where I was going, Mike. With all the huge amount of investment that went into studying angiogenesis upon the success of bevacizumab, where okay, yeah, we got some you know multi-targeted promiscuous TKIs that have antiangiogenic activity, but a lot of the things that were studied as next-generation specific antiangiogenic targets did not make it. So for some reason, you know, VEGF is the first, the best, uh, and you know nothing else has kind of come in its wake in the same way. Well, just in the spirit of being provocative, um, Emmett, could, if you can talk about it, what uh, were the learnings from? Um, PD-1 plus IDO. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so if you look in um, protocol 37, I forget what the echo number is. Is anybody here from Insight? I, I, I can't possibly be talking unless I'm making sure that our colleagues are, are either here or not here. This was a great collaboration. They were wonderful scientists. So you know, everything I want to say, I want to make sure I, I pay due diligence to, to their hard work. Um, you know, it's again the Tversky uh, Kahneman problem. If you look at the first seven or eight indications we looked at, four of them were positive. The next four were not. So your eye says, okay, this is a positive result. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons business wise why you might have jumped to the phase three. So there are, are, there's one phase three and there's now f um, four randomized phase twos. If you look at the hazard ratio in the four randomized phase twos, it's one taking all the data together. If you look at the hazard ratio in, the, in 252, of course, it's, a, it's an emphatic one with about 18,000 zeros after it. <laughs> you couldn't more perfectly superimpose two curves. This is called investigator bias. Please, if you're an investigator, I'm not accusing you of anything. You know, it's just the natural product of who you are as a physician and a scientist that you're optimistic. That when you know, somebody tells you IDO is the best thing than sliced bread and you eat a cracker, it tastes like sliced bread. Um, so you know, honestly, the, the IDO thing, there's so much champion out there of why aren't we doing post hoc hypotheses on this? And my question is, as during our phone call, why? What exactly are you looking for? The, the data that we saw unequivocally was not reproducible in a randomized controlled setting. So, so, so I would add, in addition to that, that principle, there's the myth of the heavily pretreated patient. And actually, this is what happens in a lot of these early phase trials. The people get up and they talk to the room like, listen, these patients were all heavily pretreated. And to many people, that means that the patients were really sick and they were, you know, on their last legs. And that's completely, completely untrue. The heavily pretreated patient had to have a robust enough clinical status to live through many treatments. They had to have a slow enough growing tumor to live through many treatments, actually. And to wit, the response rate to anti-PD-1 as a monotherapy in kidney cancer in the phase 1B study was around 30, 32 percent. In the phase, with a couple complete responses, by the way. In the phase 3 study, in that same setting, second line, it was about 20 percent with zero CRs. And so there are data that heavily pretreated patients are not what a lot of people think they are. That's great. Actually, I think we have some questions here. Um, and we did not use your name in vain, Dan. So. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of felt like I was calling 
called up here. <laughs> I'll start with the uh, immun- immunity cycle bashing. Um, <laughs> I would say that Ira and I have talked a lot about whether we should revise the cancer immunity cycle, and the decision has been no, because we think that the biology represented in the cycle is still very much true for what we believe today. But perhaps there were some misinterpretations around it. So first, you know, a lot of the things that we proposed there did pan out. Remember, chemotherapy was one of the key pieces suggested by the cancer immunity cycle, as was VEGF inhibitors. Both of them have actually been stunning successes with... Yeah, Tabanero just published a paper days ago about this. And while some of those are additive, others are actually synergistic. And so I don't think that we can just say, oh, this failed as a concept. What I do think one could misinterpret is there were obviously a lot of next-generation immune targets suggested in there. But what we never said was the relative importance of any of them. And we recognize that, for example, in inflamed tumors, there may be 20 targets in that bucket. And it's not that we don't think they're real. I, for all the IDO failures that have come to date, I would suggest that IDEO remains an active biologic tog- target. Maybe it's not the best therapeutic target. And when, you, when you're in a bucket like inflamed tumors and PD-1, PD-L1 plays, I don't know, I think I often quote, let's say accounts for 80% of the inhibition of T cells against cancer cells in that setting, adding another 1% is going to be almost impossible to show in a clinical trial. So what you end up with are hazards of one. And so um, my suggestion would be not to, to literally say, oh, well, do, do any of these work, but really ask yourself, how important are they? And I heard the concept around single-agent activity. Certainly that's the best way we have today. If you have single-agent activity of one of those new molecules, it probably represents more than 1% of that sliver. But um, I think that we've learned a lot in this period of time. I wouldn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Bath I would say, look, we understand this much better than we do. There's not another five PD-1, PD-L1s just sitting there in inflamed tumors. And so we're going to have to be smarter about how we go after um, that grouping. And that, let alone when we, before we start talking about immune-excluded or immune deserts. Um, and then just one final comment. I know that there was a lot of debate here about... When you have a failed trial, do you just move on? Certainly different people have different philosophies around this. Myself, I like to look to the boom-bust cycle, which is when new concepts come up, there's often a lot of hype about them, and often they crash because the expectations were unrealistic. And it takes people dedicated to that field to figure out then, okay, that idea was good, Maybe we just didn't apply it correctly. And the example I would use is for immune agonists. Incredibly complicated. Dose and schedule are unlike anything we've probably ever seen in immunotherapy. But is it impossible to figure out? Probably not. Thank you, Dan. And that, that was not pre-rehearsed, just so everyone knows. That was purely spontaneous. Um, Oh, I want to actually to make a, a comment that Please, actually agrees a with, since yeah. I was the basher, I want to agree in one sense. <laughs> um, so Nick Haining is going to talk about my paper at the Keystone meeting as a challenge to the field. Um, and, you know, his take is probably my take, which is, okay, this is what's true, and just as what was true in 2013 is going to evolve over time, what I saw in the literature as of, you know, X time is going to change over time, and I'm as likely to be wrong 13 years from now as, as right. 
Um, it's just it's a point in time. So for a, a data point on this, if you go back and look at a brutonym, you know, and the first time we had TKIs, and now you look at TKI registrations over the years, and I did this as a, as a mental exercise, it took 10 years before the field of TKIs began to actually have an impact. So on, on the front of where are we and have we stumbled, no. We've had stopping points. We've had good data that were negative data. Um, and actually, again, a la the VEGF, if you look at the inflection of TKI approvals now, they're on an uptick 20 years later, largely because, um, and I would argue that in our hands, the reason that Merck did a lot of the work we did with the VEGFs was the other, other principle. Add any two active compounds, I don't care what the immune mechanism is, it's going to work. Um, so it's, you know, it's two different ways of looking at the same thing. And yes, we need to keep going. This isn't a stopping point. It's an inflection point. Yeah. I'm absolutely loving this panel discussion. And I think <laughs> these are con conversations we absolutely right. need to have. Um, just a couple of comments. One is I think we did learn from the IDO combinations monotherapy, there was very little pharmacodynamic activity with these agents. And so just understanding translatability and translational medicine with monotherapy agents prior to combinations, I think is a lesson that we've learned from these various combinations that we've been doing. So I wouldn't say let's not do translational medicine in the clinic. Just understanding phase one pharmacodynamics is useful. Um, with the comment on what did we learn from the bevacizumab example and the multiple, I've lived through both worlds. With bevacizumab, there was very little understanding of human tumor vascular biology. And so when they developed next generation targets, they went into mouse development biology. That's a very different paradigm than what we're doing today with immunotherapy. Um, the translatability of mouse development vascular biology to human tumor vascular biology didn't play out. But what we're doing now with cancer immunotherapy is really understanding human tumor immune biology. And I think that's still really important, the amount we've learned in the last 10 years. We haven't learned that with any of the other therapeutic modalities, I would argue. And I think that's because, again, we're really trying to understand what works and what doesn't work. So just a plug. For translation. Yeah, I think that's a good point, that the, the very nature of immunotherapy has necessitated a better understanding of the utility and the differences and between, say, mouse models and humans, because it's, they're clearly not the same. I think most of us recognize a mouse versus a human, but I may be wrong there. Um, I do want to add one comment, though. Um, I, I do think there are interesting learnings and that there are agents or even, let's call them, approaches that may have failed because of not just trial design, um, but also, you know, it wasn't the right time for them. They didn't have the right tools. And I would point to cancer vaccines. I'm still a strong believer in those. I'm not going to define, you know, which immunization modality or which targets, whether they're, you know, tumor-specific antigens or new antigens. But I think if you look back at the history, a lot of those failures weren't necessarily because, you know, it was a bad idea. It was the trials didn't go on long enough. They obviously didn't have checkpoints. There was all sorts of stuff that, that went on that would have explained their failures. Not to say that, you know, we should still be, you know, it's now 20 years on, I think, one of the late 90s were some of those early trials, like anti-idiotype ones, et cetera. But anyhow, so Chuck, did or I just want to add something on, on timing. We also need to consider timing at which you are um, uh, investigating and, and interrogating the tumor. Because, I mean, for example, on, on VEGF, we just saw how VEGF3 early on in the, in the tumor stage is actually uh, immune sensitizing. And then later on would be 
um, uh, suppressive. So there's so much you need to go in. And just want to add that to your timing point there. Yeah. Well, I think that also goes to, I mean, even some of the um, things up on Andrew's chart, some of which have had, they call them failures or stumbles or whatever, like IL-10. We knew right out the gate that was a complex molecule, very context-dependent. Right. Whether you agonize it or antagonize, it's still not clear to me what you want to do. But Well, to, to, to Dan's point about agonists, I mean, uh, you know, uh, um, I'm having a senior moment on um, Samir Khalif has shown that if you give OX40 after PDL1 inhibition, you get a, you get a robust response. So, you know, dose, I mean, it seems relatively simple. The scheduling matters, but... The, yeah. the ability to explore that really hasn't. Yeah, that goes to Chuck's point, and I don't think we, we've ever we've never really done that even in you know old style oncology. Right, a lot of chemotherapy agents were not optimized in sequencing or dosage, et cetera, for a variety of reasons. So whether the sequencing or timing effects is, is clearly, I think, important. But question. Yes, actually, questions and no comments because Dan and Pretty basically got all the comments that I would have liked to have gotten <laughs> off. Um, I'm loving this panel, but I have. Two important questions. Chuck probably knows these for me. Um, so you said the single agent activity, but what do we do if you believe there is synergy with a non-active and a PDX? Do we continue to go after, I mean, Merck, uh, TGF-beta, and myeloid-derived suppressor cells are the two things that pop up is uh, poor response factors in you know, all the PDX trials that you've run with Pembro. So, but... TGF-betas haven't shown so much monotherapy activity except for one patient here and there. Do we continue to go after these non-active monotherapies that we believe could have synergy with the patients? And then what do you define as appropriate translational medicine for these trials to answer these questions? I know what my answers are. But yeah. I <laughs> so, you know, so, so I mean, there are random... So the argument against the randomized controlled phase two trial is that it generally tends to be underpowered, um, and that's the argument statisticians will, will, will always put forward. But I would argue that in, in where we are now in oncology, we don't need a small signal. We need a big signal, actually. And you saw how the Tidget was like falling off the map. Nobody cared anymore. <laughs> be, you know, BMS was ending their program. Merck is then nobody cares. And then we have one randomized control trial, which we haven't even seen the data from. And now it's like on the top of the list, right? Okay. So, so I, I would argue that that, that r properly done, reasonably sized, randomized control trials can lead you to know if there is a single. You might miss something. No question about it. But I think that there are enough agents, pathways, drugs, and companies that that's okay, actually. And maybe I'll just add to that. I think one of the things that's missing here is the upfront biology. So, Emmett, you mentioned it, the idea of what are you actually going to be interrogating post hoc, translationally, if you have a pre-specified hypothesis-based biologically, um, then, of course, the translation is critical. One of the things that we have been working at really quite uh, in, in quite a detailed fashion is interrogating the biology up front and understanding, do you want to actually sequence therapies, do you want to combine them, or do you want to um, put them together maybe in a bispecific or bifunctional or multifunctional molecule? And, um, and we've learned, we have a few learnings with molecules now in the clinic, the first of which was uh, addressing the adenosine pathway and TGF-beta. 
and monotherapy approaches, we just weren't seeing the magnitude of response that we were expecting or hoping for. So what we've actually designed is a bifunctional molecule with CD73 and TGF-beta-trap. It's now licensed with Gilead in the clinic, and it's quite an exciting molecule. Similarly, there's Treg depletion from within the tumor microenvironment that still remains a really important tumor escape mechanism. And we know what these Treg cells are expressing in many cases, but we haven't been able to selectively or specifically deplete them. What we've been able to identify is that you can try to dose, combine, sequence any number of some of these molecules. You're just not going to get the kind of activity that you could get with now what we're seeing, which is a bispecific molecule. We haven't disclosed the targets, but it's addressing, uh, co-expressing proteins on T-cells. You're you're validating these in... So first, we've fully characterized the T-cell life cycle through a platform approach, so high-throughput immune monitoring in vitro. Mm. Then we go into in vivo models and murines, and now we're in the clinic. And they, and they faithfully recapitulate They're the so microenvironment? To date. Yeah, to okay. date. Yeah. Emmett, maybe you can comment on, because I yeah, know I, to that question specifically. That well, I mean, I, it's, it really bo- probably boils down to methodology, and I'm listening carefully to w- what Jennifer's describing. And again, I, I don't have any problem with translational biology. I, you know, I, I have a lot of problem with, uh, you know, wish hunts. Um, you know, when I was on study sections, you know, you got thrown out if, if you pre- presented a higher order, we're going to sequence everything in the world and I'm going to find the cure to cancer. You know, you weren't even allowed in the front door. So, you know, why are we suddenly allowing that thinking again now? We know how to do these things. You have a pre-specified hypothesis. You test the pre-specified hypothesis. Don't go sticking your hands in the candy jar looking for more than you get. Um, so you know what the pre-specified hypothesis from the first PD-1 phase one was? Ooh, I was I was there. The pre-specified hypothesis that it would have it would have no activity, and it might be dangerous. It was actually a single arm trial. It was MDX 1106 at that time. And so I think you know it's it's good to have a pre-specified hypothesis, but sometimes the clinic patients are different than the mice were really. So to that, let's expand the question. I think which is important for probably a lot of newcos or. or little past newcos that are in the audience would be um, what is, and I think you've, you might have mentioned this uh, on one of our calls or even at the bio panel, what is that monotherapy hurdle that they should be looking at? Because I think one of the things we want to try and end up the discussion here is what lessons can we tell to the innovative biotechs out there uh, that they need to be doing or not doing in order to convince themselves and either prospective investors or partners that there is something there. Sure, and this was part of the intent of our putting the data together was to help us, together with our partners, make good decisions. So, I mean, all you can do, past performance is no predictor of future performance, but you, know, you can at least get a benchmark around it. Um, but let me take a step back, and this, there's nothing new in this. There's papers published over you know, almost four decades of oncology experience. You know, it's been published in every decade. So this is not something specific to immuno-oncology, targeted modalities, or cancer, or, or chemotherapies. This has been true throughout. A threshold might be 5%. But remember also, the 0% rate of getting to be a registered drug is not zero. It's merely much more less, it's much less likely. So you could keep persisting, but it's going to cost you more money and time. So in the paper, basically the median um, overall response rate increment from 
um, monotherapy to the combination of the same line of therapy was around two. So if you're not more than twofold increasing in your combination trial, you're already behind 50% of the other companies that are out there developing. And if you're skating to where the puck is going to be, clearly those that have a higher ORR is, are going to be in a different place when you actually get to your phase three. So again, a, a little bit of the intent of this was to help us think, you know, to help us think where you are against the landscape. Um, and you know, I just offer, ha have a look at the paper. I'd be delighted if you'd argue with me. Um, it's at JAMA Network Oncology, and I'm sorry for that plug. I didn't mean to do it. Well, I, I originally plugged you. It's, it's not your fault. Uh, Asnika, make a comment, Mike, if you have one, and then we have a question. So okay, I'm, I'm probably close to be out of time. I'll be the apologetic voice for Wall Street here. So um, what, what I'll, I'll, I'll help you out. Please. Uh, I, I think. Got back. Post PD-1, um, when we saw a lot of the combinations, when it was a PD-1X, I think people got a lot, a very excited. Um, and it was, a, it was a big broad spectrum. Of, but some, some were um, pessimistic when you see you know, a marginal improvement over PD-1, but they're going, oh, there's got to be some sort of impact here. Um, but, th but the bar was quite low originally. I think we've, investors have now started to got a lot more skeptical about this. So you come out and you say, here's a PD-1 plus X. Um, they're not looking for maybe like a five percentage points difference now. They're looking for something a lot more yeah. meaningful. Right, right, which is why it's going to be interesting to see how the street reacts to the TIGIT mm -hmm. data from Roche. Because if Andrew's correct and it is a hazard ratio of 0.7, well, geez, mm -hmm. it seems like you can get that with Avastin. You can get that with chemotherapy too. So it's a different mechanism, but is it going to justify the economics that are commensurate with what you know investors expect to get IO pricing for? Great. Well, you, you addressed some of the questions I would have asked right there, so thank you. Um, <laughs> two questions. Yeah, so someone we've been talking... And then someone I do know. We, we've been talking a lot about the boom-bust cycle, right? And in some areas, immuno-oncology, oncolytic viruses, we're probably at like bust number six. And the question is, when do we move on? Right, so I think that was the point. Next play, I went to Duke, so I'm a big fan of, of Coach Gay. On, and, and oncolytic viruses was in the, the, the book. Is it time to move on with what we've seen, or is, or is there still an opportunity? I'm going to recuse myself as a lapsed virologist. I'm going to let others speak, actually. I'm biased. <laughs> I, I can just tell you, I, uh, you know, we, from Fortress' uh, position, we, we see a lot of oncolytic viruses, and I, I just I, I can't figure out how to differentiate one, one from the next. Um, I think a lot more work needs to be done. Uh, it's probably a situation where it's going to be the right tool for the right job, but I don't think anybody's come up with kind of the playbook to, you know, metaphor for Coach K. The playbook is not written yet for oncolytic viruses. So, 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 so I was asked to give a talk on intratumoral injection at another meeting, and I surveyed the field very carefully, and the number of intratumoral injections of schmutz was incredible, actually. <laughs> at that point, it was like 90 different things. And so I agree with you. It's very challenging to differentiate. But there is a clinical parameter you can look at, actually, and that is the agent that can reliably induce subscopal effects in a detectable way, probably in a randomized way, I would agree with you, actually, will be the agent to look at. And I think that's how someone could break away in the field. So far, we, I don't think we, we would agree. We probably haven't seen that yet. But that, that's the goal. That's what you see in animal models when these things work. Yeah, and for the you NUCOs out there, when you do those studies and then re-challenge, so you show you've got memory effect right. and rejection of the, you know, the tumor, that, that's what you want to do. Um, I want to start a biotech called Schmutz, Schmutz TX or Schmutz Therapeutics. Or oh, I can't resist making sure that um, um, the Georgina Long comment uh, that this has been going on for about the last four years, they want the vodka experiment. 
they're really looking for the control experiment to be the injection of vodka into your tumor leak. Well, Lou Keltner says he's done the experiment injecting ketchup into some tumors and getting regression. So, you know, Axel. It might actually work. <laughs> so uh, the one comment I want to make, and you may have some thoughts about it, is, you know, now that we're advanced with immuno-oncology, this is no longer a young field that has a few little hints of activity, but we have invested huge amounts. We've made big progress for patients. The one thing that I believe we need to do better is biology exploration and make the next decision, not based on what do I have in hand and that I can throw against uh, uh, the wall and see what if it sticks. It's more about what's the right biology how much can that biology then drive, move the needle? And that applies in two ways. And one is really basic biology. The reason cancer vaccines have not worked yet, and that's my interpretation, is because we haven't figured out what is the right immune response we need to actually trigger to translate into clinical benefit. That we induce immune responses with vaccines is clear. We have seen it so many times. But we have not yet understood what is the phenotype of those cells that must occur for clinical benefit. We get it with so many other modalities, but we have consistently never characterized what is actually the immune response we need. And before you know that, any other investment is another crap shot. The same like the 30 uh, failed ones we have had before in vaccines, right? Just start thinking about vaccines. Now then thinking about all these other moving the needle ideas about TIGID and whatever else, uh, it's a matter of endpoint. Uh, of course, we all want to see responses early. In a first-in-human study, a 50% response rate would be really lovely. It's easy to get behind that. This is not what I.O. does. It's a rare thing for an I.O. compound to produce a high response rate. I.O. loves to change the equilibrium between the immune system and the tumor. And you get other kinds of benefit, long-term benefit, that is harder to measure so getting some responders is good. It gives you signals of activity. But what's the real de delta here? The delta comes from long-term endpoints. And largely, survival. And you can't do that in phase one. It's a little hard. But that's where the randomized study comes in. So I concur with Chuck. The randomized study is important. And it should measure survival if you can. So I'm curious about TIGIT like everybody else here. Uh, and there are other compounds that are in the same boat. So I'm interested. These are opinions, obviously. But you know, do you guys have any thoughts on this? We're at, out of time, so or, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, very reasonable comments. I don't know that anyone would yeah. disagree with what you said, Axel. Um, Actually, I don't have a comment. Oh, okay. I mean, a comment on the comment. So thank or, you for uh, so um, for for actually putting a right, plug for my, my question or, or my <laughs> comments here. So, you know, I think. Uh, translational work has been a little bit dashed in, in this forum right now, but I think it's a different translational question than what you have with TKIs, right? We are turning on immune system, right? If you look at the, 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 the PD-1, PD-1 responses, you have responders, you have non-responders. You don't have intermediates, right? And so I think the translational here is pretty much what, what, what Axel said, we need to understand the biology. And so, so I think the translational here is monitoring the immune system in the body, right? At least you know whether you have a mechanism working, and then if you have an effect on a tumor, right, that's a secondary question. So, you know, um, just say... That's so telling me we're up to. Right. So what we are doing, uh, just, just so you guys know, is we have a phase two agent that uh, uh, images CDA T cells in the body. 
right? So you can actually dynamically follow where the cytotoxic T cells move into a tumor. And you can look whether it kills the tumor by, by different methods. And there is an effort in Europe, at least, the IMI consortium, that's developing sort of the, the, the concept of immune monitoring, real life, in the body, uh, some ways of measuring how the immune cells respond. So I think that kind of translational work or, or the tools should be helpful to a great degree to, to the iotherapies because, you know, we know even the viral responses vary a lot from person to person because immune systems are so different. So, great. All right. Thank great you. Job. Thank you, everyone, for attending. Next year, we'll have the celebrity death match on translational <laughs> uh, science. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you, panelists. It was great. <laughs>